is the Australian Rescue Podcast. Well, thanks for joining me today on the Australian Rescue Podcast. It's great to have your company. Steve Monro is my name, and uh, we've got a great episode for you today. It's another long one, and uh, this is the story of three SES volunteers who have uh, gone out on a floodboat rescue to go and rescue a family trapped on top of a house. There were some big floods in south of Brisbane earlier in the year of uh, 2017, and these three floodboat operators were the ones who went out and rescued a family uh, and their first time in a floodboat situation like this. Today, you're going to hear their story. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Australian Rescue Podcast. My guest today on the Australian Rescue Podcast, we've got three people who have uh, been involved with the Queensland State Emergency Service for many years. I've got Chris Holloway, Claire Browning and James Ferguson, or Jim Ferguson as everybody sort of knows you by, or pretty much the boss. You're the local controller of Logan SES, and right. um, how does that go with you usually? Oh, look, I um, take it with a grain of salt. I enjoy being the boss, for what it's worth. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a nice name. It's not said in a bad way, so it's a nice name to have. And how long have you been doing it for? Uh, I've been the boss or the local controller for just over seven years now. So came into emergency services from correctional services, and it was a, a big transition for me coming in at the top job and at the bottom job both at the same time. It was very interesting times. Mm, I guess you would have uh, learned a few things as well along the way. Yes, for sure, for sure. Chris, you have been, how long have you been in uh, the SES for now? Uh, Steve, five and a half years now. Okay. And what position uh, are you playing at the moment? At the moment, I'm the group leader of Beanley. Okay. And Claire? Uh, I've also been in five and a half years and I'm the deputy um, group leader down at Beanley. Okay. So it sounds like there's a few groups going on around with the uh, Logan SES. Yeah. Total of six groups all up, of which Beanley is obviously our favourite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today. <laughs> Today it is. Today, yes. No, that's great. Okay, so um, look, we're going to step back in history at the start of uh, 2017. There was a cyclone that hit northern Australia, uh, Queensland in particular, Cyclone Debbie. Can you just take us through what happened there? Cyclone Debbie um, hit just north of Proserpine on, was it the 29th of March, uh, earlier this year. Um, obviously, Proserpine got the worst of it. They got all the wind and the initial rain. Mm. Um, but as the cyclones hit the coast, it's started to, to lose power um, and it's sort of unwound and then slowly headed toward the southeast where it's now brought all of its rain and a little bit of wind down towards us. So over the next couple of days, it's travelled towards us. And um, okay, so that's brought all the rain and the wind with it heading to the, to the south. And then eventually it's got down to us that rain that had fallen to the west of us and to the north has uh, joined our river systems, the Logan and the Albert, and um, proceeded to flood the area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So for those that don't actually know where the Logan region is, um, it's probably best described as just half an hour south of Brisbane. So yeah, pretty much between Brisbane and the Gold Coast with uh, Ipswich and uh, Tambourine to our west. That makes perfect sense. Tell us what happened, you guys being in the SES down there, um, it obviously would have been a uh, sizable event, I would assume. 
Yeah, the um, the actual aftermath of Cyclone Debbie brought probably the biggest activation for Logan SES that has had in quite some time. So not just the rescue that we're involved in, but there was a massive clean-up for the flooding, not only on the Albert, but also on the Logan. And it's interesting to note that the two rivers flooded differently. The Albert River rose fast, flooded fast, and went down fast, whereas the Logan um, came up slow, stayed up for quite a while and then went down slow. So there were two different rivers and two different sorts of floods. So it was very interesting. Because mm, I was having a look at some of the pictures and maps and things whereby the water level were lapping the top of highway uh, overpasses and things, which yeah. that's pretty much unprecedented yeah, for, for the region. For Logan it was, for sure. Yeah, okay. Because um, wasn't the Elbert River, its its level was the highest in... 100 years, 150 years? Yeah, I think years. it's now become the highest recorded. I think 1896 was, an, was what they were banding around, I believe. But, yeah, it's highest recorded now. Mm. So how would this compete or compare to uh, the Brisbane floods, uh, say, five or six years ago, I think it was? Well, for, for Logan, the comparison is like chalk and cheese. Like when the Brisbane floods happened in 2010-11, there was nothing in, in Logan. Logan wasn't affected, and that was all due to where the water fell. Um, the water fell in the catchment area for the Brisbane River in 2010-11, but it fell in our catchment area this time. So we weren't affected in 2010-11 at all. Mm. We had very little flooding compared to, obviously, what just happened. Yeah, okay then. Well, take us through what happened, uh, because uh, Logan SES was out on um, some activations and you guys obviously were doing your thing, whether or not you're going out just doing observations or you've got a bit of storm damage or people's rooms are, are flooding or I've got water coming down my walls on the inside or, or similar. Um, what were you doing? Uh, Beanley being in Logan City Council area, tell us the story. What what happened this particular day for you guys? Yeah, it was think, a pretty think, big day. I think we all have different stories leading up to it. They, right. they kind of um, meet towards the end. Um, but I know for myself, I started the day as any other. Um, I, I went to work at 8 o'clock, 8.30. Um, I knew that Debbie was, was up north and that eventually we'd get some, some work from it. So I'd, I'd planned to, to leave work at about 11, 30, 12 o'clock. Um, had already canvassed a team, got a team together to do some jobs. Um, and we, all, we, we met down at Beanley at that stage, I think. Claire, you were with, you were with me with that team? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, so you'd probably gone to work Yeah, earlier. so I left that morning at 6 o'clock. Went yeah. to work for a few hours, but um, non-frontline staff were sent home. Okay. So work at a hospital. Um, so anyone that wasn't necessary in the front line um, were told to go home before the major part of the storm hit. Because that was common across all a, a lot of workplaces, I believe. Correct. They yeah. they knew the weather was coming. They said, "Stay home. We don't need you." Yeah. 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 And, and you got that. Yeah. Good plan. Mm. Um, so then we've met down at Beanley with some other members. Um, my other deputy, Dave Jewell, and my daughter, Teach Clark. We all met down there and then we spent the rest of the day doing storm damage jobs, sandbagging, temporary repairs, things like that until about, what, eight o'clock? Eight or nine, yeah. Eight or nine that evening. Um, we were then stood down. We didn't have anything else to do. So I think we've gone home. Yep. Um, first time we've seen the, the family all day <laughs> and it just happened to be my wedding anniversary as well. So as the, we were supposed to actually go out to dinner that night, but we, we cancelled those plans early on. I'd been home for half, half an, an hour. hour where um, Jim calls me to say uh, we need to set up an evacuation centre down at, down at Beanley. And it's something that we specialise in down at Beanley because we have all the gear, we train in it a lot. So um, after a short 
conversation with my lovely wife Justine. We've um, we've we've left and well, I've left and headed to Beanley where I've met Claire and and Jim um, and some other members, where we've proceeded to to get our equipment ready to head to the local PCYC to set up that evacuation centre. Okay, I can see everybody nodding their heads, going, <laughs> "Yep, I remember that." All right, who wants to take the story from here? Um, I think probably I should be the one that takes it from here. So we've set up the PCYC for the evacuation of residents because Logan City Council was concerned that potentially a number of residents were going to lose their houses in the very short term. Uh, We'd been on site for approximately two hours when the call came through that no one was going to be evacuated. So it was about two o'clock in the morning Mm. when the call was made that we should stand down from the evacuation centre. We've said our goodbyes and we've all tried to go home and get a little bit of shut eye for for the rest of the day because we knew it was going to be a busy week. We'd got home, um, in my case in particular, I'd got home, had a quick shower, had only just climbed into bed when the phone rang at 3am and it is a policeman, cannot tell you his name right now, and he's basically said to us that there's some people stuck on the roof, can we get a boat to come and help get them off? Uh, I got a very brief description where he was. Uh, he said that he was out at Luscombe um, and that could we get there as soon as possible. I said, sure. Uh, hung up from him. I then called Claire because Claire lives pretty much down the road from where I live and I knew she'd still be awake. <laughs> uh, I spoke 3 a.m. Yeah. I well, just yeah. got into bed. Yeah. <laughs> just got the uniform off. So I said, Claire, we've got a flood boat job. Are you good to go? And she said, yes. Do you want me to call Chris? And I said, sure, if you think he's awake. Chris lives a bit further away, but as as it would happen, Chris, being a morbid person, was out taking photos of the river. So we all um, then went down. We all have hobbies. Yeah, we all have hobbies. <laughs> so we all then went down to the, the Beanley Depot um, and met up down there and hooked up the boat and started our trek. Right. Okay, so clarify this for me. Why wouldn't the police, if, uh, if they said get there as soon as possible, why didn't they send a chopper in? Can't give you a definitive answer to that, but from what I understand, the choppers were all very busy and that because it was so dark, they weren't sure where power lines were and they weren't able to necessarily put someone safely down onto the roof. Right. So in theory, power was out in the area as well? We We were hoping so. We weren't sure. We didn't know. (laughs) We couldn't give you a definitive on that. All right. Well, let's keep going. Claire, your turn. (laughs) (laughs) You all um, met up down at the headquarters. Yeah, so we're Beanley base. Um, I think Jim had pulled the boat out. We, uh, Chris and I got there virtually simultaneously. Um, started prepping our boat, getting what we needed done. Um, and then we didn't have any info at that stage. We were just prepping the boat with Jim. Got underway and that's when Jim told us what was going on. Um, until then, we just knew we had a flood boat emergency. Um, then we just proceeded. I think at that stage we didn't really know a lot, just that there was people on a roof that needed rescuing. Um, we had no idea what we were in for, really. Mm. Um, we got... I actually had totally forgotten one part of this drive there. Um, that Actually, no, Chris is probably better telling the first bit. Um, because yeah, there was, was the road was... We uh, were cut off. Yeah, because mm. I was... I was I was driving at that stage. I drove the vehicle out um, and we've got to, I'm not sure the name of the bridge, but there was a bridge on the way out there that the council or some the traffic controllers were yep. already starting to, to block off because they knew that the water was rising right? and they were going to stop traffic because once you get past there, you can't get any further and you're stuck. So um, they were already blocking it off. Yeah. 
And on the approach, I went down the window, put on the red and blue lights. Normally we can't do when we're driving. We put them on there just so we, they knew that we were serious. As we rolled past, they said, look, we're on our way to a rescue. Um, we need to get through. And they said, sure, no worries. We weren't going to stop you. So we continued. So that was our first real look at potentially what was ahead of us. Yeah, okay then. And at what's were you driving through puddles at that stage already? No, no, I don't think there was any. It wasn't raining. There wasn't really much water around. We couldn't okay. see the river at that stage. Had no idea. And I'd never been out to the Stanmore Weir before, so I didn't know what it looked like. So, and that was where you were launching from, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You obviously got to the Stanmore Weir launched. So, well, we got to the Stanmore Weir, and I um, had an idea where we could launch from because I had been to the Stanmore Weir before. Uh, so we had to cross over the the Stanmore Bridge to get to the other side and that was just going underwater there was a bit of water there and there was a fireman who was putting away something on top he was the only fireman we saw Mm -hmm. while we were there Uh, we drove around his fire engine on the wrong side of the road there was no traffic so it didn't matter Mm. Uh, drove to the other side and then I said to Chris back the car up in here that's where the road generally would slope down and that's where we uh, decided to launch the boat from initially so Claire and I have jumped into the, um, the boat proper and Chris has backed it down with us. I think we talked to you on the radio saying left, right, yeah. left, right. So we got to where we thought we were safe to launch and actually launched the boat. That's probably the first time where we really felt the current. The The boat was getting pushed back towards the weir as well. That's probably a, a confusing thing for the weir itself was, what would you say, 20 meters underwater At now? At least, yeah. 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 But yeah. the bridge looked like the weir because the water was yeah. going over it. Wow. So we still call it the weir, but it was actually the bridge. So the boat was getting pushed towards the bridge to get pushed over. Um, so I struggled to keep it as still as I could because we didn't want to get too far away from Chris because he still had to get back into the boat. Yes. So yeah. we, we struggled to keep it where we were. Um, we successfully kept it not where we possibly should have, and Chris managed to wade his way back in and j- jump yeah. into the boat. But but even that in itself was a bit of a dangerous thing because I had to keep the motor running mm. but keep it pointing away from Chris so that the props didn't come anywhere near him. So And that was a little bit awkward in itself because the boat was trying to turn around to where Chris was. So, mm. yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I was glad when he actually got on board and I didn't have to worry about that anymore. That was actually <laughs> one of the yeah. scary moments. Mm. Um, yeah. I do actually remember you saying to me, Jim... Claire, we can't wait for Chris. Yeah, it was getting that way. Because the current was really starting to pick up. It was really rough and it was hard. Mm. And I like you look back and you just think there was no way that was a two-person job. That was not going to be a two-person job. So we needed Chris on board as well. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So that's a bit scary to think we nearly had to go without him. Just Mm. on launching. Yeah. Yeah, And then although Jim said he tried to keep the props away, I'm pretty sure Chris was – Fairly close to those. He came in the side he probably yeah. normally wouldn't have, but there was no choice really. But yeah. um, No, yeah. we always teach you to never approach a boat from the stern, especially when you've got rotating yes. ro- <laughs> rotating choppy bits. Yes, mm-hmm. the, the dangerous end of the yeah. boat, yeah. shall we say. So these, these guys were worried about it and they were in the safe part of the boat. I had to, yeah. to wade past it. But thankfully Jim kept it nice and steady. So I, not, at no stage did I feel that he was going to manoeuvre it and, and, and endanger me. So it was all good. All right. So moving on, everybody's in the boat, and um, and off we go. Now let's just point out here that this is the first time you guys had ever done a, a rescue yeah. of this nature. Correct. Correct. Up until now, it has pretty much been a lot of 
running around and training and training. Yeah. This was actually our first time for all three of us to be on flood water, not just the rescue. It was the first time on flood water. Because we had done some training in Scrubby Creek during a bit of rain, which gave us a little bit of experience in fast, fast fast flowing water in a narrow environment with trees and branches and stuff like that. And that was invaluable learning, Mm. learning how to maneuver the boat, using the current as, as an advantage, um, knowing how you can turn, where you can turn Mm. without endangering the boat. So yeah, yeah, that was good. I just thought that that's important just to outline, just so we understand the significance for even Mm. you guys particularly of, of, um, of training of training oh, mm. yeah without training we wouldn't have done it yeah we just wouldn't have done it so um at this stage i'm driving the boat um claire had you brought up your app at that yep, stage i was on google maps yeah so what Cl- time are we we're at four o'clock now uh, oh no three thirty three thirty oh, yeah. yeah, okay right yep. dark yeah yep. still take middle of the morning yeah yeah so i've taken the boat and we've gone to where we think the river proper is uh we've started heading upstream and we've come to basically a wall of trees um which there was only a narrowest of gaps to go through and we weren't sure what was on the other side of that gap and we weren't keen to push the boat through because we didn't know what we were going to get into and potentially we could have got stuck we could have been literally up a tree mm. so we made a decision to um, turn the boat around have a think and when we spun the boat around there was a farmer standing on the side of the road side of the road side <laughs> of the river probably 150 meters away so we decided we'd go over and ask him for some local knowledge about what was on the other side of those trees. So we took the uh, the boat over to there, uh, had a qu- quick chat to him. I can't remember the gentleman's name. Uh, at that stage, Chris said, you know, would he mind, would I mind if he drive? And I said, no, that's that's fine by me because I, I was getting a bit nervous as <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah, you can have it, mate. Uh, Claire gave me the phone to navigate with and, yeah, then we pushed back off and went through that actual gap, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then Chris he... was driving. Because he told us, the farmer being the he, um, told us that our initial assumption was was right, that that's, the river was on the other side and it was going to be flowing fast, but it was a, a reasonable amount of room to get the boat into and headed in the right direction. So, yeah, okay. So that, that's where we headed, with a bit of confidence. Mm, a, a bit, bit of confidence, <laughs> yeah. So is it common practice to use your phones to navigate? No, definitely mm. not, I don't think. Uh, in this instance, it was invaluable though. Mm. Um, and the reason being, looking at the phone, I was able to say to Chris, we need to be more port, more port. And it was generally more to port because we were constantly getting pushed to the starboard. Uh, and Chris actually has downloaded where we actually went. And once he took over the driving and I took over navigating, we, we pretty much stayed within the river proper for the entire trip. Yeah, I guess because if you can't see where the level is and the banks and, and all the rest of it, you could be driving over who knows where. Mm. Exactly mm. right. Fences, barbed wire fences. Yeah. Mm. Sheds. Buses. Buses. Yep. Buses. Who, who knows what? Cars. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that like as though you did it. So, so at this stage, my um, being the local <laughs> controller, I'm getting um, a phone calls from all sorts of people. Logan City Council had a uh, incident control centre set up, and they were ringing up what's going on. The police that had originally called me were ringing up saying what was going on. Our watch desk that tasked us jobs were ringing up and saying what's going on. It was to the point that it was becoming a little bit um, annoying because mm. I'm constantly trying to answer the phone but tell Chris where I'm going and then put the phone back. And it became a little bit of an issue for us, but we eventually got over that, thankfully. I told them all to just leave me alone and I called them when, when something was worth reporting. Politely. Yeah. Yes. All right, so take us through what was going on through your mind. I think that first part 
when Chris took over and we entered the main part of the river, that my one of my first memories there, I was down on the um, spotty. So I was doing the spotting and it was dark. Hmm. Um, and getting back through that first small bit to get into the river, that there was cracking trees and they're falling and you have no idea where they're falling. So that probably was my first, apart from obviously when we were launching, that was the next oh crap moment you know it's, yeah. it you couldn't move the spotlight to see if the tree is about to fall on us but at the same time you wanted to know where it was but just trying to keep that path and listen to what Jim's telling Chris where to go so that I could point the spotty in that direction um, and obviously yeah trying to look out for debris which was flying quite heavily past us yeah and imagine. obviously the river noise like that volume was deafening. Like I could, I'm at the front of the boat, which is probably three metres away from where Chris and Jim were and trying to hear what they're saying um, was obviously hard at times. So obviously Jim would yell stuff down and I'd be yelling stuff back and mm. yeah. It was actually quite funny. There was a, a moment there where, I oh know it was later on when you picked up Clayton, wasn't it? Yeah. Where um, Claire yelled out, watch out for the bus. And I thought she said, this is where the bus goes. And I yelled, relevant information only, please, Claire. <laughs> but she was actually telling us there was a bus somewhere in the water, but I didn't I proceeded realize to um, tell him it'll be relevant <laughs> if we hit it. <laughs> yeah, but that's not what I heard. <laughs> but aftermath. Yeah, funny now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, so uh, you've been on the river now for, what, half an hour at least, I yeah. would suggest? Yeah, look, and the thing that was probably very relevant was the speed that we were travelling the motor was probably at maximum revolutions and we were probably just making walking pace when you compared it to um, telegraph poles and the likes that weren't moving. We only just gradually moved past them. So, And the boat was almost flat chat, I'm sure. Mm. Mm. Wow. It's yeah. almost where you sort of think, oh, should we have launched upstream further? But um, you, you don't know that, do you? No, no. And, and you couldn't have. You couldn't have. There was nowhere else to launch from. Mm. We were launched from was the only spot. Unless uh, perhaps we could have gone around through the Gold, through the Gold Coast reaches and come back up that way, but still, don't I don't think there was any other way to get there. But then we would have been delayed. Yeah, which too far. later mm. on you realise mm. was pretty tight. Yeah, so we've we've done about thirty minutes uh, roughly, and it's hard to gauge because you know time just goes out the window, as you probably know during these sort of events. But it was after about thirty minutes or so we saw another set of lights further up ahead of us. And we actually, I actually thought, that's it, we, we're here, we found them, we, we're good to go. But it was actually a bunch of civilians on the riverbank telling us to come on over and they were actually pointing out that there was further obstacles ahead of us. And it was at this stage that we made a decision to get one of the locals on board the boat to help us navigate further around to where we actually had to go. His name was Clayton. So he jumped on board. We gave him a life jacket and, and pushed off with a little bit more confidence that we knew where we were going. So you guys don't usually, even though you do all your training, you hadn't been in this particular area? No. 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 We, normally that part of the river is way too shallow to put a boat in. You, you just can't do it. You can't put a boat in there at all. It's too yeah, shallow. Okay. Right. And it's actually not in Logan. It's in Gold Coast. Right. Oh. So it's not our normal stomping ground. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Okay. So Claire, you can take it from here. We've got Clayton. So once we pick up Clayton, he's down the front of the boat with, with yeah. myself. Um... And the two of us, he'll be telling me, he was the one who pointed out about the bus information, which I then passed back to the boys. Um, and it wasn't far down once we'd got Clayton. We were going under some power lines, um, not knowing 
if they were live or not. So we all hit the deck. Um, hey, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you hit the deck and you're in a tinny and Correct. you're saying there's power lines. Yes. That's how high the yeah, water yeah. level was. Yep. yep. So we... Um, okay. Mm. So that puts perspective. We all hit the deck and it wasn't far past that that the motor then cut out. Um, luckily, we were right near a tree, so I grabbed the tree um, with Clayton as well, and between us, we tied off to the tree. Um, and then Chris and Jim got to find out what was wrong with the motor. Um, but the whole time, I'm at the front of the boat. I've now because we're tied off. I can now point the torch towards the boys and. <sighs> Damn it. So the boys have their helmets on, but the whole time they're working, trying to work out what's around this motor. And I honestly thought I might lose my team at that moment. Um, so the whole time I'm telling them, duck. So between them, they're looking at what's going on with the motor. And I just keep duck. Because they'd slowly bring their heads back up. And so I'd just duck constantly. In hindsight, power was probably out, but you don't know that at that moment. And <clears throat> you don't, yeah. So, um, yeah, one of the boys can tell you what was around the motor because I was at the wrong end of the boat. <laughs> so you, you'd stopped, you were tied off at a tree under the power lines. Because you had the nowhere else boat. to go. The yeah. back of the boat. Yeah, back of the boat was mm. under the power. Was under. Because mm. obviously the tree where yep. we were wasn't, but where the motor, exactly where the boys were. Yeah, and that's where the current had us. The current was pushing us that direction yeah. and we were under the power lines. I, I don't know that we knew we were directly under the power lines. Um, we were sort of aware of it, but not directly underneath yeah. the power lines. So Chris has tried to start the motor twice and it, it's failed on both occasions and we've brought the motor up. And there's a hose wrapped around the propeller, a fairly substantial hose, about mm. an inch and a half in diameter. Irrigation. Uh, yeah, some irrigational fire type hose, big blue one. Um, I've jumped onto the back of the boat and Chris has grabbed me by the belt um, so I could lean over as far as possible, constantly aware of the amount of water that's rushing underneath us at this stage. Uh, and luckily it was a nice... It, it just wrapped itself around. So it was a matter of pulling the, the hose through in, in increments until it came right the way off. Uh, we had a look at the very end of it, which was obviously a, a big metal connection, and we just let it go back into the water to, you know, be gone. We actually came back at a later date and found that at a later mm -hmm. date. Did you mount it somewhere? Yeah, yeah it's being Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, then we've put the, uh, the motor back in the water, and thank goodness it started first turn. Is these electronic start motors? Yep. Yeah, Mercury outboards are similar. Suzuki. 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 Yeah. 115. All right, so you're stuck in the water. We're ready to go again, and off we go. I think we headed headed upstream until I think we saw some more people yep. that waved us over. Um, and at that stage, I don't think we'd even realised how close we were to the house. It was only once we actually reached the people and they helped us pull along this fairly shallow, it was actually Halls Road where the house is, Um it was the road out the front of these properties. So at that stage, it was fairly fairly shallow. I think maybe a foot, maybe two feet worth of water flowing over. Um, not enough that we could get any forward momentum with the boat. So we've got these people on the side of the bank to, to help pull us along until we could tie off onto a pole. 
Um, and then from there, we we decided to let Clayton off and let and get another civilian, Sam, who was a, a young gentleman that lived right across the road. So he knew the layout of the property really well. Um, because of course, none of us had seen the house before. We didn't know where anything was. We we could see that there was there was a driveway and there were fences, there were power poles, power lines, trees. We had no idea where any cars or any caravans or anything were in the yard. So what sort of how area was it? We're not talking suburbia. This is semi-rural, semi-rural paddocks and, yeah. and, and trees and, yeah. and things. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of properties that um, raise and train horses. Yeah, so fairly big. Um, a lot of rural fences. So whether they're wire, uh, wire fences or the big um, copper's log type fences, lots of trees. This was also the first time we could hear the family. Yeah. Mm. We from where we were. Right. Yes. By, by now the the house is 75 80, yeah. 80 meters away so yeah. we can we can hear the family screaming we can hear them but they're on the other side of the building to us so we can't see them yet but we know they're there right and we can hear them so yeah. that's a good sign because you know they're still there exactly and you think we've got a mission to do yeah let's do it so um with Sam in the boat he advises that we couldn't just go straight across to the house which is probably would have been the most sensible thing to do uh, he said you couldn't do that because there was fences and cars in the way and he directed us upstream probably another 100 metres and then we had to turn port between a couple of big trees and bring the boat back with the current towards the house. As we went up between the trees, that's when we got our first vision of the family on the roof. Uh, they were calling out to us and I think all three of us called out to say that we're coming. We'll be there as soon as we can and to stay calm, obviously. Um, Chris managed to miraculously get the boat up alongside the house, the second story of the house. I think it was the first go, but not yeah. before there was a, a gentleman standing on the veranda upstairs um, and he was just standing there. He was, I don't know what the word is, he was waving on his feet, like he was wobbly on his feet, appeared to be wobbly. And we were yelling at him to get back inside the house because we weren't sure what would happen if we hit the veranda with any force because the current was pushing us. But he took a long time to take that on board before he actually stepped back inside the house and then Chris um, brought the boat up alongside the second-story veranda, which was approximately six to eight inches underwater at that stage, I think. Okay. And everybody got on board? So Clayton and I... Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in the vehicle now. <laughs> it finally was that simple. And Clayton and I tied up at the front of the boat and I think Chris might have tied up at the back. At some stage, I'm not even convinced we were tied off. Jim jumped off. To go and get started, I'm. I think you were. Mm, okay. No, I think he was. Off, he was off the boat before <laughs> we tied off. So I don't think you were. Um, so Chris and I got the boat tied up. Chris wanted to um, kill the engine because mm. the um, he had had some overheating warnings going. Yeah. So it was important that he got that turned off, which normally we wouldn't wouldn't do if um, we had a choice. However, hindsight has shown us a few things that we might not have done. Um, or we might do differently next time. Um, touch wood, there's not a next time. Um, well, Jim's probably best to say where he went. He um, disappeared inside. Mm. Six to eight inches of water running through everywhere. Yeah. In the second story. On the second floor. So climbed off, spoken to grandfather, as we now know, and said, you know, how did they get up onto the roof? Because the, the mother and the two children were on the roof and there was no obvious sign how they got there. Uh, how'd they get on the roof? He said they climbed up on using a chair and he pointed around the side of the house. I leaned over the veranda and could see like an, an annex that would normally go over the windows below 
and I could see a chair around about eight metres along that annex just sitting there just outside of the water. So I've, I've climbed over the, the veranda railing to the other side of the railing and while hanging onto it, I've reached my foot out, touched that annex to make sure it's solid enough to take my weight. Uh, luckily it was. I've um, gone over to that on my hands and knees, crawled along as close to the house as I could so I didn't get too wet because I hate getting wet. <laughs> Got to the chair um, and stood up next to the chair and came face to face with Helen and the two kids who were just sitting there, just waiting um, I said that we were here to help them and I basically said what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the, the little girl first, um, take her down, put her onto the boat, then come back and get the other ones. Helen was remarkably calm. The little girl was actually sitting behind Helen at that stage. Helen pulled Sienna forward and pushed her towards the gutter. I picked her up. She's light as a feather actually, whether that was my adrenaline or whatever, I don't know. I've put her down onto the annex, told her that we're going to crawl on our hands and knees back to the side of the, the house, which we both did. I put her against the wall and myself between her and the river so that if anything happened, she was a little bit protected. Got back to the edge of the annex, um, stood up and passed her across to Sam, who was now leaning across the veranda as well. He could easily reach her at this stage and he's taken her. I've crawled back to the, le- to the um, chair, stood up, done the same thing with the boy Xander. Um, brought him down, he's a little bit heavier, brought him back down, same deal, put him between the house and myself, crawled back, handed him to Sam, went back and reassured Helen that the children were both safe uh, and that she had to come down now. That was a little bit more challenging because she had to actually turn around and lower herself down onto the chair because there was no way I could carry her and myself and stay upright. So I've just hung onto the chair till she's there, guided her foot down, got her onto the, the annex and then we both crawled back. Um, she was a little bit more difficult to get back onto the veranda, but eventually she did it. Um, once she was over, I've then just climbed back onto the veranda and stepped inside the house and sat down on a double bed and just, I had a little bit of a cry at that stage. I just went, wow, and sent a text message to my partner to say that we were safe and we'd got them uh, and everything was fine at that stage. Mm. A little bit preemptive. In it's hindsight, it was a, a lot preemptive, but at the time <laughs> that we were safe. At the time, we were safe. Yeah, okay. It's always a good time to stop and rest sometimes and reflect. Yep. So Chris and I had pretty much stayed on the boat getting the life jackets ready. Yeah. Um, And it was Sam. I think I said Clayton before, sorry. Um, So Sam was passing them one at a time. Um, I had to ask him to wait because until I'd given them the jackets, I didn't want them getting washed away. So we got the jackets on first, um, handed them out, and pretty much just placed them where we thought they were going to be safe on the boat. Um, and then I think, was the grandfather last? Yes, yes, because he didn't, he didn't want to leave because the horses were still in the paddock and the, the dogs were still in the house. And at that stage, I don't think we'd seen any we dogs. We not seen any dogs at that stage. So that was when, when Helen or, or the grandfather brought Helen, the dogs Helen out. went back and got them. So Helen came and... She brought the dogs out and they were two huskies, which um, resonates <laughs> fairly well with me because I just lost two huskies. They both both died after having them for 14 years. Mm. And normally it's not our policy to to take dogs on the boat, especially in that sort of situation. Um, but two, two reasons why we did was one is that granddad wouldn't leave without the dogs. And uh, so we thought that that's a perfect opportunity for us to 
to use, use the dogs as leverage. Um, but then also the fact that I love huskies and they reminded me like my dogs and there was no way that I was going to leave them there. Had they been chihuahuas, they were dead. Yeah, <laughs> chihuahuas, yeah. So um, the horses, unfortunately, we couldn't do anything about. I think the, the rest of the property was completely underwater. So we weren't going to to do anything about the, the horses, but luckily I think both horses mm-hmm. ended up um, being rescued separately, one yeah. by a neighbour and the other one uh, walked itself out further downstream. So they didn't lose any any livestock. We got uh, Grandad fitted up with a, with a life jacket, and by then I think Helen and the two kids were already in the boat. Yeah. Um, so then Sam's lifted the dogs over to me. I've yep. grabbed them, put them down, given them to Helen. So she secured both dogs. They were, I must say that at, at every stage of this, the dogs, the kids, Helen, the granddad were all calm. Mm-hmm. None of them made our job any more difficult than it already was. They were fantastic. Yeah. They really mm-hmm. were. Yep. That's good. Big, heavy, wet dogs. Actually, they weren't wet. They'd been inside the whole time. They yeah. weren't wet. Only okay. the little bit in the Yeah, just yeah. on the legs. So then um, I was last into the boat. I shut the um, the door of the house so just so the carpets didn't get wet if it rained. <laughs> <laughs> I actually said that to Grant, to Helen. I'll shut the door so it doesn't get wet if it rains. It was so, a bit of irony. So you can see it. And we've um, <clears throat> all climbed aboard, given them a very quick, very quick briefing of what to do if something went wrong with the boat. Um, and Chris has asked Claire to let go of the forward line, and we've let go, and Chris has taken over from there. So we had a bit of a plan. Actually, before we let go, we we had a bit of a power to work out how, how we were going to get back. Because you're only 100 metres away from shore, really. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. And on the way... Um, from the road to the house, like we knew that there was a, a BMW in the driveway, didn't know exactly where. Well, we, we found it on the way in because <laughs> there was a driving along to the, the veranda and had to do a bit of a U-turn and clunk. Oh, okay, there's there's the car. So um, we knew that the car was there this time going back, so I wasn't going to go back the same way. And it was not really pointed in the right direction. So directly upstream were two big trees. So I just, we, we, plotted a course basically to head between these trees and then um, turn to port after the trees and go over the fence line and, and back down the road. So missing some more power lines. Missing some more power lines. Yeah. But we knew where they were. We'd seen them on the way in. We didn't really think about what was going to happen once we got to the road because the road being shallow, we weren't going to have any any depth or, or room to manoeuvre the boat around 180 degrees. So we're, we're coming down at a, a reasonable pace heading the wrong way with what with no way to stop so we're quickly yelling to the, the people on the bank like, um, we're going to throw you the bow line can you grab this and tie it around the power pole right and that took them a couple of goes to get it that would be a quick maneuver mm. very yeah, much yeah. on their part yeah yes. mm. but thankfully they they got it um we got the rope rope to them they tied it off and then pretty much just um when the bow line's taken up taut we've swung around 180 degrees um, come to a stop. So pretty much we couldn't go anywhere from there. So I've, as driving the boat, I've turned it off, trimmed it up, and um, sat down. Yeah, my, my yeah. job was done. Yeah, we're right up alongside the, the bank now. We've yeah. come right up to the bank, so it was cool. And everybody can get off. <clears throat> yeah, so pretty much opened the side door. Family all got off. There was residents there, obviously. They were all, you know, everyone gave their thanks and everything was cool and we're all happy and I made some phone calls, phoned the policeman, phoned the watch desk, phoned council, phoned everyone and said, look, we've got them all, everything's safe, we've, we've come to a stop. Um, and they headed off downstream to where Sam's house was for a cup of tea and we just basically all sat in the boat and 
Actually, no, we got out of the boat and had a hug, didn't we? No, I think we no, had... No, we, we stayed we, on the boat had and a, had a cry. Yeah, we had a bit of a cry in the boat first. <laughs> a cry in the boat. Yeah, my, my cry started early, like when I said before that I sat down and I had, I had nothing else to do, nothing else to focus on. So I sat down and was trying to hold back my, my cry, mm. just the, all the emotions and I guess the stress and the tension that had built up over that time. Um, I, yeah, I, that, that, that was my opportunity to, to let mine out. But then... Claire and Jim's came a little bit after that. Yeah. Pretty much once Helen was the last to get off and um, she was emotional saying thank you. And we had a cuddle with our life jackets on, which isn't easy to do, but you know. Um, But yeah, she was very grateful and um, she welled up, I welled up. She left. I kept going. (laughs) (laughs) Then um, the three of us just... I think just the relief and the enormity of it, and it hadn't hit until then. I think it was just there was no stopping it. Then I was, no, we're no. a mess. Because mm. I think I'd I'd been trying to hold on to mine because I didn't know whether <laughs> that was what I was supposed to be doing. Mm. Um, but then when these two have turned around and they're feeling the same way, it's yeah, it's okay. Made it okay. Then it's then it was all out. It's a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Yes, yes. So then we we kick back into training mode. Um, I think we sat back on the boat and we started debriefing each other about what we'd just done, how well it went, what could have gone better, whatever, whatever. Um, at this, this stage, the sun was coming up and we could actually see the, the Albert River now. Previous to that, it was all just whatever Claire found in the spotlight. Now we could actually see the river and we all just were in awe about how fast it was flowing and we all made a decision that it would not be safe for us to try and navigate downstream with that current at our back. So we just all agreed that we would just sit here where we were and wait for someone to come and get us or for the river to go down because it was not not feasible for us. We are all tired at that stage too. Most of it had been up for quite a long time, probably in excess of 24 hours at that stage. And it just wasn't it wasn't something we were contemplating was to go back down that river, having now seen it in the daylight. And it was just, right. it, it's hard to fathom how big it was too. Mm. Like it was a long way across a long way across that river, and it was running fast. Mm. And there was rubbish trees coming down. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Mm. I think at, at that stage as well, we didn't know if we had a vehicle or a trailer to go back to. Because <laughs> uh, where, where I'd left the trailer initially was, was up on high ground, <clears throat> 200 metres away from, from where we'd left. But only it was the highest ground around that I could find. So I've, I thought, well, and, and I parked it right in the, right in the middle of the road, and I left the keys in it, left the windows down, put the red and blue flashes back on, just so look, if anybody saw that the water was was rising or if they, they thought it was in the way, they could move it. Um, also left my phone and my wallet in there. Yeah, so that's a different story. <laughs> so, yeah, I was all the while running back to the boat at the beginning of this, I was thinking I may not see this vehicle again. And it was brand new, so I wasn't I wasn't really looking forward to the the grief I was going to get from Jim, <laughs> particularly from the controller Jim here. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But thankfully, uh, a good Samaritan neighbour, local, saw the vehicle and um, parked it in, in his in his own property, well out of harm's way. So we got everything back mm. in uh, the same condition we left it. That's really good. But, yeah. at, the, but at the time, um, once we'd finished the rescue, we had no idea that that it was still there. I was expecting it to be washed downstream, smashed to bits. Well, given the uh, speed of the water that you were describing, 
I would probably expect the same thing. Mm. Yeah, and it actually, um, where Chris left it did actually go underwater. If this resident hadn't moved it, it mm. would have gone. In fact, we were sitting on the boat when my phone rang and it was um, someone from the Gold Coast saying, have you lost a car? And I went, no, I haven't lost a car. And they said, well, we, we found one. Like, right. I'm not sure about this. But, yeah, that was our car. Was They'd ours. moved. Someone had found it and moved it. Thank goodness. Yeah. So then about, um, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes after, after that, and we were all just kind of relaxing, I suppose, as much as possible. There was a, a, quite a significant crack in the direction of the house where we just come from. Uh, we've all looked that direction expecting to see another large gum tree falling into the water, but the actual house that the family had just been sitting on um, actually bobbed down into the water about a foot, bobbed back up again, and then started floating downstream. It collided with the house next door and uh, did a bit of a cartwheel, and then at this stage we've got our phones out, Claire and I have got our phones out trying to video it, um, not the best videos, uh, it's disappeared behind the house and come out the other side and worked its way downstream. And we've managed to see it completely wipe out two or three massive gum trees. It's just mm. knocked them over. They just, they offered no resistance. Uh, the house has continued to float further downstream, taken out a few more trees and then come into some ta telegraph poles where the actual part of the house where the family was sitting actually collided directly with the telephone poles and just fell off, just disintegrated. And then it continued to go downstream and broke up as it went downstream. It's just, and then we had another, oh, shit moment. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How does that make you feel? I think it brought everything back and it made our next debrief even more in-depth. Mm. All the what-ifs. And we look at the what-ifs now like, what if it had broken off while we were on the house? What if it had broken off while I wasn't in the boat, but they were in the boat? What if one of the family was in, but the others were? And there was all these different what ifs that went through our heads. But, you know, what ifs don't don't do anything for you after the event. So we quickly dispelled that and went with what has as opposed to what ifs. Mm. And mm. what can we learn? Yeah. It sounds like you'd still do exactly the same thing in a matter of you go there, you pick them up and you'd bring them back to safety. Pretty much. I yep. don't think we would have done much different. In short, yep. yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And look, there's there's nothing that we did that was spectacular or above and beyond what anyone else in our floodboat team wouldn't have done. We were just the three that were in the boat that did it. The training that we did was the same as everyone else does. And it would have been the same had we had someone else in the boat. It would have been exactly the same. It's just that we were the three that happened to be there that day. And following on from that, you, you've had a few interviews and the media have, have gone, well, <laughs> these three guys are great. Uh, you know, you did a great job by all means, but as you say, it's right place, the right time. And the fact that somebody filmed it. And it was filmed. Yeah. Yeah. If it hadn't been captured, it probably wouldn't be as big a story. And that in itself is a story because that was the Friday morning and on Sunday the Premier came to Logan East, our headquarters, to do an interview about how well Logan was responding and all that sort of stuff. Because you were the controller as well. Uh, you I was were there. there yeah, I was there. Everything. Yep. yep. Um, and pretty much no one really gave a two hoots about who I was or what I was doing. They had no concern. And the, the main media had packed up and left, gone home. And this little fellow from ABC was a dweeby little man he was. He came up to me and he said, I heard you had a rescue. And I went, yeah, yeah, we had a rescue and we did this, this and this. And he said, where was it? And I told him. And he actually went out to Halls Road at Luscombe 
and it was the him that found the video that the neighbor had taken that became the video that went on the TV that night. Mm-hmm. And from there, it escalated. Had he not gone or he'd spoken to me, it just would have been another rescue that was just chalked off. But he actually made it something um, with the ABC. And then once the ABC had it, Channel 97 and everyone else and his dog jumped on board. Mm. Sounds like a journalist actually did their job. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always nice to hear. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. So what have you guys been doing post the event now? So everything's gone back to normal. How have you handled everything? You reflect, you're still all doing boat crews and things. You haven't... Yeah, we're all still yeah. back. We've all got back in the boat. We've all um, doing our training as normal. Yeah. I'll put my little PSO, my peer support hat on and say we all got um, support that we um, needed after the event. We um, get offered good support and we made sure we took up that support. And yeah, we're all doing pretty good. It's funny, a lot of people think that the first time back into that kind of situation, first time back in the boat at night was going to be the hardest. But if anything, for me, it was, it was just like any other night. Um, I wasn't, wasn't daunted, wasn't afraid to get back in the boat. It's, it's a passion to be there. So no way that we were going to let a traumatic event. I don't think it would, you'd even say it was traumatic. It en- ended well. If it had ended badly, maybe it'd be different. But we all took uh, positive things out of it. So we'll, we'll use those to our benefit. Mm. I guess the biggest thing with uh, being in floodwaters, it's an uncontrolled risk that you've got no power over at all. Unlike if, if you're at a fire, okay, that's still uncontrolled, but you can step back away from that and you can get away from the heat mm. and you can sit mm. down and rest. Whereas if you're on a river, on <laughs> floodwaters... There's not much choice. You there can't w- do anything. There wasn't much choice <laughs> yeah. from, the, from the get-go. I We're think from, it also helped that it was pitch black we couldn't actually see mm. what we were getting ourselves into until we were already on the water <laughs> yeah but then it was too late yeah we were committed, we committed. <laughs> i think uh we were looking at all the obstacles that we were coming across and i think if, if we'd ever seen one that we couldn't overcome then that was the time that we might have turned back pulled the pin on it but we we saw obstacles and we we found ways around them we we thought laterally we used the the phone as as our as our direction finder, we spoke to different people when we need to. We improvised. Claire and Clayton thought quick on their feet to tie us off when we needed to. Everything turned out the way it should. Is there anything else you'd like to share while we've got the mics open? When we were leaving the family for the, the last time on that morning, and we'd seen them little bits here or there, um, just thinking about the things that, that stick with us afterwards. And we were saying goodbye. I think it was just the mum, Helen, and, and the boy. Mm. And uh, we're saying goodbye and giving them hugs and shaking his hand. And just out of the blue, he he just said to us, thanks for saving our lives. And uh, that that kind of hit us pretty pretty hard at the time. And I think it does every time we we think about it or try to say it again. Mm. You know, Mm. those those little things you take with you. Mm. Yeah, and I think it was... um it was probably about two, maybe three hours, probably three hours later that Logan Essia sent another flood boat to come and get us um, with some of our experienced coxswains in it. And I don't think I've ever been so relieved mm. to see a, a flood boat coming up the river to come and get us. And then mm. the two experienced coxswains drove us back and, well, to see the river in daylight and mm. how big it was and to see the amount of carnage that was going on downstream, it was just unbelievable. And to think back... Um, I think we've all said it. Had we seen the river 
before we launched, we wouldn't have launched. Because because of our inexperience in floodwaters, we would have all just, well, I would have anyway, looked at that and went, I can't do this. There's no way I can do that. But because we couldn't see it, we jumped in. Mm. And mm. the family needed to be saved. The fireys couldn't save them. The police couldn't save them. We were the last hope for them. Um, yeah, but yeah, to see that floodboat come up was fantastic for us. For me, it was fantastic. Mm. It's like, wow, we're safe. We're going home. Yeah. Took us a long time to get home, by the way, but we, yeah, we're going home. <laughs> yeah. mm. So, Jim, just had something that, that I know the story that comes from your side of things, though. When when you were talking to the the police controller on the phone, and oh no, no, that was actually from when he was talking to he or she was talking to Helen, and they were telling them that we can't send anybody. Yeah. Mm. There's nobody coming. Yeah. So Helen apparently made a number of calls for help. Mm. Uh, her initial call went to the fire brigade and they launched their swift water rescue, which is hence the fire truck w- was on Stanmore Bridge. Which is, I was thinking, why haven't, why weren't they doing it in the first place? That they, the swift water rescue basically have a little blow up canoe, for want of a better word. They p- pump it up and they paddle. They don't have a motor. And there was no way known they were going to go that three k's up the river in a paddling thing. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, Helen had run back a number of times and apparently was told at one of the calls, we're sorry, we can't get anyone to you. Um, But obviously they hadn't counted on us. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. true. And our determination to get there. And I think the other thing that we've mentioned it before is this was our first rescue for all of us. Um, it's interesting that earlier in the year there'd been a rescue upstream and Chris and I were a little bit um, put out because we didn't get involved. And Chris had sent me an email saying, this isn't fair, it's not right. And I actually wrote back to Chris and I said to him in that email, our time will come, Chris. <laughs> And it did. Indeed it did. Indeed it did. More than you know. Mm. You know. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks for um, sharing your story today. Look forward to more stories. Thanks, Steve. Not from us, thanks, Steve. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. (laughs) Not, Not this time. Well, that's it for another episode of the Australian Rescue Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. If uh, you'd like to see more of this, uh, you want to read about these guys, just go to the website, arpodcast.org, and uh, from there you'll be able to get in touch with us as well at our Facebook page, hear other episodes, and uh, just connect with everybody else who's listening as well. So uh, once again, thanks for joining us. Until next time, just remember, once rescue, always rescue. Uh, Roger, stand by. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast.